Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we catch up on the all-important food safety issue with Kimberly Roberson, a certified nutritionist and founder of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, or FAM. She's joined by Sean Witzling of Citizens for Health, who has been so helpful in getting out FAM's new petition with the Food and Drug Administration. Kim will tell us about that petition, as well as an update on suspect foods and what to look for in your nutritional supplements to avoid the possibility of ingesting radionuclides while you think you're improving your health. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, July 2, 2013, and here is this week's anti-nuclear news. The United Nations has come under well-justified criticism from medical experts and members of civil society for what critics consider inaccurate statements about the effects of lingering radioactivity on local populations. Scientists and doctors met with top U.N. officials the week of June 17 to discuss the ongoing effects of radioactivity in Japan and Ukraine. The U.N. has enlisted several of its agencies, including the virulently pro-nuclear International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, their muzzled lapdog, the World Health Organization, or WHO, and the U.N. Science-Ignoring Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, or UNSCIR, to address the matter. So what happened? In May, Unskir stated that radiation exposure following the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster in Japan poses, quote, no immediate health risks, there's that spin-speak word, immediate, and that long-term health risks are unlikely. Dr. Helen Caldicott, never one to mince her words, said in reply to the Unskir report, I think it's ridiculous. There have been health effects. A lot of people have experienced acute radiation illness, including bleeding noses, hair loss, nausea, and diarrhea. The WHO is handmaiden to the IAEA, said Caldicott. It's a scandal which has not really been exposed in general literature and to the public. The 1959 agreement between WHO and the IAEA is a major issue which Nuclear Hot Seat will be addressing in an upcoming special edition, where we will examine the how and the why of who and the IAEA. Oh, there's much more on this story. We will link to our source at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. The U.S. Energy Department is moving towards abandoning a half-built factory that has cost $3.7 billion so far and was intended to make reactor fuel out of plutonium from retired nuclear bombs. The cost to complete the plant at the Savannah River site near Aiken, South Carolina, has jumped to $7.7 billion from the original estimate of $4.9 billion. If the plant were to be abandoned, the government would still owe its contractors a cancellation fee that is likely to run into the tens of millions of dollars. So they get to make more money from being incompetent and over budget. I missed that class in college. In Oak Harbor, Ohio, the Davis-Bessie nuclear power station remains shut down after one of its four reactor coolant pumps experienced trouble on Saturday, June 29th. The plant automatically shut down around 9.20 p.m. Saturday evening after an apparent electrical problem with a pump motor. To date, it has still not been started again. Keep it that way, guys. Here's a little bit of Looney Tunes, not quite numbnuts, but Looney Tunes, from Kentucky where their nuclear future has been melting down due to lawsuits. The Commonwealth of Kentucky may sue the federal government to compel cleanup of the now-closing uranium enrichment site at Paducah, this according to the governor and the state attorney general. Whistleblowers allied with the Natural Resources Defense Council have filed suit against Paducah contractors over past fraud and legal violations in waste handling at the site. A new round of litigation after fraud complaints joined by the federal government about a decade ago. Paducah workers will likely sue to recover their vanishing pension benefits. And heck, if you don't sue somebody, then you're just not a member of the Paducah Nuclear Club. 
This is another complex story. We'll post it on the website. So here in Southern California, and apparently elsewhere in the conscious world, we were excited to learn of the permanent closure of the San Onofre nuclear power plant on June 7. But you didn't think the problem was over, did you? Here's one of several heads-ups currently in circulation. This one from Bob Alvarez. He writes, Southern California Edison's decision to permanently shut down the San Onofre nuclear generating station transforms it into a major radioactive waste storage site containing one of the largest concentrations of artificial radioactivity in the United States. Over the past 44 years, the San Onofre reactors generated about 948,956 spent fuel rods containing roughly 484 million curies of long-lived radioactivity. Of the estimated 1,631 metric tons of spent fuel, about 73% is to be stored in two reactor pools, just two. San Onofre has generated nearly three times more long-lived radioactivity than is stored in some 177 defense high-level radioactive tanks at the U.S. Department of Energy's Hanford site in Washington. Thanks to Bob Alvarez for that very succinct heads-up. Know that activist groups hold different thoughts on what's to be done with the waste, and that's going to be another report on nuclear hot seat in the near future. One-third of the 16 million tons of tailings from the former Moab uranium mill in Utah have now been transferred to a nearby site for a disposal. The site, next to the Colorado River, great placement, guys, encompasses some 435 acres, of which about 130 acres are covered by a 78-foot-thick pile of mill tailings. This is the waste material from uranium mining and has been implicated in a wide range of illnesses downwind, including cancers, heart disease, and reproductive problems. So all they did was pick it up and move it from point A to a not-yet-constructed disposal cell, put that in quotes, in Crescent Junction. And for this, they're asking almost $36 million in 2014 alone, And this project is not expected to be complete until 2025. And we all know what happens with estimates in the nuclear industry. It always takes longer and costs more than anybody says up front. Nuclear, the gift that keeps on giving, whether you want it or not. And now it's time for the nuclear hot seat. Nut nuts of the week. There was a loan guarantee program started in 2005 here in the United States to promote alternative energy sources. It was expanded in the 2009 Recovery Act. Sounds good, doesn't it? Here's the rub. It has more funding for nuclear power than any other power source. That's right. This alternative energy program is providing billions in loan guarantees and direct government loans to expand the nuclear industry. This brilliant article, which is in no way cognizant of the dangers of nuclear, came from The Motley Fool, which is an otherwise respected source of financial information. Send them something scathing, would you please? I already did. Pacific Gas and Electric is trying hard to sell the local community on a Diablo Canyon renewal. In an effort to gain public approval for its license renewal request, representatives from PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, dined a roomful of local business and community leaders on what was reportedly a mess of pottage. The senior vice president and chief nuclear officer for PG&E, Ed Halpin, said, Public safety is number one. No, Eddie. Company profits are number one, and you know it. Diablo Canyon sits atop an earthquake fault and a sacred Native American burial ground. To those business and community leaders who were at that ill-fated dinner, Nuclear Hot Seat says, It's evil! Don't touch it! And here's another warning for Diablo Canyon-adjacent businesses, homes, and politicians, and that is that millions of krill, a tiny shrimp-like animal that is the cornerstone of the ocean food chain as well as Dr. Mercola's much-hyped krill oil, 
These krill have been washing up on the beaches of southern Oregon and northern California for the past few weeks, and they've been dead. Scientists are not sure why, to which we give a resounding nuclear hot seat. Duh! Among the theories advanced by otherwise sane oceanographers are strong winds while mating near the surface caught the krill in the surf and they were dashed on the beach. Another said, it was low levels of oxygen in the water. Here's a clue. People have not seen the seagulls or other seabirds eating the krill. Dead shrimp-like creatures on the beach, no birds eating them. Can you spell Fukushima? The birds understand. Why don't you? You might try asking them. This story out of King 5 News in Seattle. The effects of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster still linger for thousands still living around the site, which will be contaminated for centuries to come. Two decades ago, a program was started in the Seattle area to help the children in Belarus receive treatment. Now, Hope for Chernobyl's Child is continuing that mission. Organizers say children are now sicker than ever from Chernobyl's lasting effects. Many have heart, thyroid, and digestive problems. They will be treated by doctors who donated their time to the group, and it is currently looking for more doctors to come and help provide care. The same needs to be done for the children of Fukushima. India and Russia are at loggerheads and have failed to resolve the problem of nuclear liability. This came up yet again during a meeting between India's Atomic Energy Commission Chairman R.K. Sinha and Sergei Kiryenko, head of Russia's nuclear corporation Rosatom. Russian sources said there was no progress on this thorny issue, which has stalled signing a contract for the proposed construction of Units 3 and 4 at the Kudankulam Nuclear Power Project. India is insisting on placing the new reactors under a law which holds the operator wholly liable in case of an accident, giving it a right of recourse against suppliers if an accident is caused by defective equipment, meaning Russia, being the supplier of the equipment, could be sued. Russians, understandably, prefer the Intergovernmental Agreement of 2008, which makes the operator alone solely liable for possible damages to Units 3, 4, 5, and 6, which are proposed for Kudankulam, meaning Russia could not be sued. This amid reports of faulty Russian valves supplied for Unit 1 at Kudankulam. Dr. Sinha did admit that there had been minor deviations in the valves' performances, but that they had been corrected then went on to say it would be wrong to call this situation with the valves an abnormality. That's right, Dr. Sinha. It's perfectly normal for brand new valves at a nuclear reactor. We're not talking about a curry manufacturing plant. It's perfectly normal for brand new valves at a nuclear reactor to leak. May these two nuclear-obsessed countries remain unable to come up with a solution because that will effectively block the building of four nuclear reactors. This amid word as of June 29th that the Kudankulam nuclear power plant, the one that has been built, could be commissioned at any time. In Japan, construction of an incinerator is underway at the Fukushima Daiichi plant intended to burn low-level waste being generated from the attempted cleanup of the still-leaking nuclear disaster site. This incinerator will be used to reduce the volume of low-level waste by burning it, releasing ever more radionuclides into the environment. It will not destroy the radiation, it will just transmute its form. Three existing low-level waste incinerators on the site are not in operation as they are now being used to store and process radioactive water instead. This is such a mess. Decontamination efforts in Fukushima are failing, prompting increasing calls from radiation-tainted municipalities for a second round of government-sponsored cleanup work. Although many areas around the disaster site have supposedly completed decontamination work, some haven't seen their dosage levels drop below the central government's long-term goal of one millisievert per year. And the town of Hirono, 
where most of almost 2,000 households have supposedly been decontaminated, many are finding the radiation levels haven't changed at all. More decontamination work may have to be considered, but since the Environment Ministry hasn't explicitly promised to do such work again, municipalities are increasingly concerned about the future of the decontamination process. It's simple. Just wait 480,000 years and it will all be done. In light of these problems, a group of shareholders at Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, is demanding the utility withdraw from the business of nuclear power generation. TEPCO chairman Kazuhiko Shimokobe apologized to shareholders for continuing to cause concern and inconvenience more than two years after the nuclear disaster. Concern? Inconvenience? You haven't a clue. What euphemisms. The utility has been slow to clean up the Fukushima Daiichi plant and continues to report leaks of radiation-contaminated water. The shareholders group is demanding the firm decommission of all its nuclear reactors. They also want more detailed disclosure of information and cuts in remuneration to board members. There's been a lot of political action in Japan centering around Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, this in the run-up to the country's July 27 elections. According to a poll conducted by Asahi, nearly 60% of voters oppose Prime Minister Abe's plan to use nuclear energy to fuel economic growth. A nationwide telephone survey conducted by the Asahi Shimbun on July 8th and 9th, showed that many Japanese remain averse to the use of nuclear power more than two years after the disaster at Fukushima began. An Energy Strategy Council set up in February of 2012 by the Osaka Prefectural Government and the Osaka City Government has concluded that Japan can achieve a nuclear-free society by 2030. And in a public policy debate involving the secretaries general of nine major political parties in Japan last Saturday, eight of the parties backed ridding Japan completely of atomic energy generation. The sole opponent of abolishing nuclear power? The ruling Liberal Democratic Party headed by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. There's a picture of this historic vote and we will post it on the website nuclearhotseat.com. Go to the blog page. Prime Minister Abe is pushing hard for nuclear to take over the country in a way that cannot be reversed. A vessel carrying nuclear fuel processed in France docked in Japan on Thursday, June 27, amid protests, and was the first such shipment to the country since the disaster at Fukushima. At the World Trade Organization meeting, the Japanese government stomped its pretty little foot and demanded that China... Hong Kong and Taiwan dropped their food import bans in the wake of Fukushima, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has pledged in his growth strategy that he wants to make Japanese agriculture strong. One of the clear gauges of this so-called strength is apparently how much agricultural products Japan can export, particularly from the nuclear disaster affected Tohoku and Kanto. Japan and the World Trade Organization did agree that country-specific restrictions should be based on science. Yeah, but who's science? Real scientists? Or World Health Organization lapdogs controlled by the International Atomic Energy Agency? The Japanese government had expressed strong concerns that the import restrictions from these countries have been going on for too long. Listen to the wobbly wording on this. Japan said that radiation levels are generally within normal safety levels and that any contaminated products could not be traded. But the food items being sold on the market in Japan continue to be found with radioactive cesium. The levels may be below the 100 becquerels per kilogram in most cases, but they are actively traded. But who said that's healthy? It's a fiction that they have put out and that they're all subscribing to. But 100 becquerels per kilogram is not safe. We will have much more on the food safety issue in our interview, which is coming up shortly. There is a big scandal brewing in Japan over how the funds collected to support victims of the 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear crisis has been allocated. According to government officials, much of that money has gone 
to power companies. About 10 billion yen of the 25 trillion pledged for disaster recovery over several years has been reserved to offset costs for utilities that were ordered to shut nuclear power plants in the aftermath of the Fukushima meltdowns. In addition, public cash has been used in areas seemingly unaffected by the Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami including to beef up security for the nation's controversial whale hunt and to pay people to count turtles in Kagoshima Prefecture. While there is no suggestion of corruption, at least not yet, the admission is an embarrassment for the government and will likely compound the public's impression that the nuclear industry is in cahoots with the state. Ya think? Earlier this month, the Asahi Shinbun reported that 108.5 billion yen was spent in 38 prefectures outside of stricken Tohoku, and that 97% of the people employed with the help of these funds were not disaster evacuees. No suggestion of corruption? No, this isn't a suggestion. It's blatant. We'll keep following this one. And it looks like the new 3D Godzilla movie may be getting its most potent plot points from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The Vancouver Convention Center was dressed as the Honolulu airport at the start of filming in mid-March. The news crawl on set screens, meaning to be read as part of the set, said 6.3 earthquake rocks eastern Japan. The production company had previously filmed scenes of the fictional Janjira nuclear power station at risk of meltdown with radioactive leaks. This may be what wakes Godzilla's, Godzilla, whatever the plural form is, from their slumber. The film is scheduled to be released on May 16 of 2014. Meanwhile, in case you weren't aware of it, Godzilla has a direct tie-in to the current Japanese nuclear disaster. That's because Tomoyuki Tanaka, who was the creator of Godzilla, was from Fukushima. Thanks to Mariko Bender for that interesting factoid. Time for the week's interview. Today we hear from Kimberly Roberson, a certified nutritionist, author of Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response, and founder of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, or FAN, which focuses on food safety issues. Joining her is Sean Witzling of Citizens for Health, a nonprofit which helps activist groups file petitions and maneuver through the convoluted regulatory systems to make their voices heard by individuals and government agencies charged with protecting our health. Let's start with you. We've spoken with you about Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network and also your book, Silence Deafening, before. But why don't you bring our listeners up to date on the purpose of FAN, Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, and the focus of the group? Back a few years ago when the Fukushima nuclear catastrophes started to unfold, um, the fuel explosions and the meltdowns, I was standing in my kitchen uh, stay-at-home mom, wondering what I was going to do to protect my child because of so much, really, you know, the silence around this issue in the media and with our elected officials is is very troubling. And it led to a petition on change.org just calling for food monitoring based on what was happening in Japan. And that led to kind of one thing after another, writing an essay that was published as a book, Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response, that, in part, led to forming a group called Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, which is a coalition group of members, including Citizens for Health, Beyond Nuclear, Ecological Options Network, Nuclear Free Planet, and Nuclear Information Resource Service. We brainstormed for a while about what to do next. Three of our member groups, Ecological Options Network, Beyond Nuclear, and uh, Citizens for Health, filed a petition with the Food and Drug Administration that was the initial petition that got your group on the map, wasn't it? Well, it really did. And we have a companion petition at moveon.org to elected officials. But this FDA citizen petition is unique in that if they accept the petition into their process, we then engage with them in shaping policy going forward. Well, let's hold off a little bit because we have an expert on the line who works with petitions all the time. Sean, 
First of all, tell us a little bit about Citizens for Health so we understand the group and what it does. Citizens for Health is a consumer voice for the natural health community. It's a nonprofit organization, and our general philosophy is consumer empowerment. The idea is get information to citizens, to consumers, so that they can make informed decisions, and that eliminates a lot of the work a regulator would have to do, and it increases the citizens' freedom. It's pretty win-win. We work with both the government and the public, and in this case, uh, the FDA specifically. Going back to the food issue, Kim, what are the current concerns and how bad is it when we look at our food supply and the dangers of radiation coming from Fukushima and so many other sources? Well, that's an interesting question. We are asking for food monitoring so that we know the answer. Until that time, what we can go on is data that has been collected by the University of Berkeley School of Nuclear Engineers, who did testing of a variety of sources, including topsoil, and found measurable uh, amounts of radioactive cesium-137, 134, and others. Also, bluefin tuna that swims over from the Japan region has been found to have radioactive cesium. California kelp and our coastline, spanning the coastline, has been found to have levels of iodine-131 that are troubling. Um, the researchers that found that are looking for more money now to go back and test for some of the longer-lived radionuclides. And I understand so, that one of the situations with the bluefin tuna is that the ones that were tested were really tested back in August of 2011, and they were fish that were exposed for a very short time to the radionuclides, whereas the ones that they would be testing now were actually born after Fukushima. So we're going to see much more the impact of the radiation over their entire lifespan as opposed to just a short period of time. That's right. So... You started the group with a petition. You have one on Move On. Is this a new petition you're getting started? And if so, why a new one and why now? Well, the petition that was started on April 1st of 2011 on change.org was written with two weeks, you know, two weeks out of this all beginning, and it was a general petition. Then Fan realized that there was this outrageous recommendation level that the FDA currently has for 1,200 becquerel, a becquerel being um, a unit of measurement of radiation, one disintegration per second, uh, 1,200 becquerel per kilogram in food. That's roughly two and a half pounds. That's um, legal here in the United States, 1,200 becquerel. Right. It, is, it is a recommendation. It is not a binding limit. So really what that means is there are no protections. And we are currently exporting from Japan at their level, which is much lower, 100 becquerel per kilogram or less, baby food is less. Now, we know that they're having a, a, a lot of difficulty adhering to that standard right now, but what it does mean is that they can export to us at the 1,200 or even higher level. So, in other words, food that's illegal to sell in Japan is perfectly legal to export to the United States and include in our food without any labeling, without any awareness, without any warning at all. That's correct. And if I may add, some people may first think, well, I don't really eat food from Japan, but you really have to think that through carefully. For people, for instance, who consume green tea, chances are very good it comes from Japan. Japan is a major grower of rice. We get seafood from Japan. Of course, there's a large Asian community in our country who live with diets that are, you know, ancestral, and they buy foods in, in Asian markets that are imported from Japan. Also, there's the problem of sea salt. Which sea did it come from, and when was it harvested? That's right. Absolutely. You had those two petitions in the beginning. Why this new one now? And then, Sean, if you can jump in and tell us how your group, Citizens for Health, has been working with FAN. Well, Libby, just to clarify, there was one petition in the beginning at change.org, the Fukushima Fallout Food Safety Petition. It is still up, and it's still collecting signatures, and that's a general petition calling for food monitoring. This was written two weeks after this all began with Fukushima. Then, on March 12th, of 2013, we uh, filed our petition with the Food and Drug Administration for the Becquerel limits lowering, 
And then we also created a companion petition to elected officials at moveon.org. So we have those two petitions, the main FDA petition where we are accepting comments now, and the MoveOn petition that is more for elected officials. Sean, how has your group been working with SAN on this? When we all started meeting and having calls to figure out exactly what is the problem and what are some solutions, we typically like to move in the direction of a citizen petition with the FDA or another government agency. We like the avenue of a citizen petition for a lot of reasons, and so our work was working with the other members of the group to accomplish that. Uh, we do send out email blasts to our members to support the other petitions as well. Most of our staff work, most of my work, focused on the citizen petition and then the public support drives. Why a citizen petition? Why is that the focus instead of, say, a lawsuit or some other avenue? I think there are two parts to that to the answer to that question. The first being that a citizen petition is not the same thing as a petition you might hand out to your neighbors or your office or start on the Internet. A citizen petition with the FDA is a legal document with legal requirements, and the FDA is legally required to answer. It's very normal that they send and file an interim response saying, hey, we got your petition and we need more time. That's perfectly normal, and that's what's happened so far. And when they get the petition, is it just that the petition is filed with them, or does there have to be a critical mass of a certain, you should pardon the expression, of a certain number of signatures on it? No, there's, there's no critical mass. The FDA is usually a pretty independent agency from its political leaders, being both Congress and the president. So they're allowed to sit down and dig into the science, but they're also supposed to answer citizen concerns and congressional concerns. So the great thing about a citizen petition is that it automatically opens up a place for public discourse. So we filed the science we found, we filed the news reports we found, and there are hundreds of citizen comments. And the non-adversarial nature of it means that if the nuclear industry wanted to come in and share some ideas, they would be perfectly welcome. We might argue a little bit, but it's really designed to come up with a great answer for everybody. So this is the nature of the petition that was filed in March with the FDA, and you were instrumental in helping FAN put that together. Yes. So, okay, it's up. What is being done, Kim, to promote this within our community and hopefully get it beyond just our community into the hands of others who would be interested? Well, thanks for asking, Lee, because we really do need to reach beyond our immediate the community to do this because this is an issue that impacts so many different areas. Safe energy, the environment, the usual suspects, but also children's health, parenting issues, scientific questions, the medical community, holistic health, organic consumers' concerns. There are numerous ones I could go on and on because food affects everybody. So we did have a successful uh, Father's Day campaign where we had an ad campaign featuring three different members in our anti-nuclear community with quotes about why they support our petition. And then we ran that over Father's Day. Now we have an ad campaign for Fourth of July and the whole week, really. Laura Lynch, who is a very committed and talented activist and graphic design artist, has been creating these ads for us, and we have about five or six now that we're putting on kind of a rotation, and they have a link directly to the Fukushima Fallout Awareness website, which is www.ffan.us, and there's also a direct link to the FDA petition page on regulations.gov where people can put their comments up which we really seriously need so that FDA will be encouraged to accept our petition officially into the process. So you're asking, first of all, for people to go to the ffan.us site, 
so that they, first of all, have a link to sign the petition and put their comments on it, but also so that they can have these ads, which I must say are very well done. They're very clear. They've got some great graphics on it, really good information. Once people have accessed these ads, let's go blue sky. What would you like them to do with it? For a little more detail about accessing the ads, once they go on to the FFAN.us website, at the bottom of that home page, there's a link to our Facebook page. And as of today, that's where the ads will be. We'll have more in the future because we're doing this not just for Fourth of July, but we'll be collecting testimonials going forward. But Blue Sky would be that this petition should be seen by anyone who is concerned about the food that they're eating and specifically the food that they're feeding their children and their grandchildren. And even more specifically, pregnant women who are at the greatest risk, along with young children, for ingesting food that is contaminated with radioactive waste. So realizing, you know, I, I know some people think, oh, gosh, another thing I have to worry about. But people also have to remember that, and Sean knows this all too well, the standards that are in place now are only there because people have fought for them. When someone goes to the store and buys a, a head of organic lettuce, they're assuming that that's the best lettuce that they can buy. And not so much maybe the case now. Until we get the testing, we don't know for sure. And for years, people fought to get irradiation removed from organic standards. Now here we are again with another issue. So it's like this is an, an if you're protecting your food, it's something that never sleeps. And there, it, it seems to be one challenge after another. But certainly we've seen with the anti-GMO movement that people are up for the task. And we can we can beat this. It's just one more thing that we have to be vigilant on. You know, they say that the cost of freedom is eternal vigilance because it can erode so quickly. And certainly food is something we all have to go to every day. So this is a, a crucial issue for long-term survival. I understand that you have recently received some important endorsements for the petition. The Organic Consumers Association... Uh, John and Ocean uh, Robbins. John Robbins is an internationally renowned author and health expert. He wrote Diet for a New America, which was one of the first books I read when I became interested in nutrition. Yeah, I read and that one. I read that one too. Being so amazed that he was the son of the Robbins of Baskin Robbins ice cream, so he couldn't be more opposite to the philosophy of uh, the family business. Right. Well, he saw firsthand what a high-fat diet can do, a high-saturated fat diet can do to the human body. We have we have several others. Stephen Starr, who is uh, the senior scientist uh, with Physicians for Social Responsibility. We have Bill Richardson, who's the deputy director of Greenpeace USA. Paul Frey, who's with Frey Vineyards. They're lending a quote and a photo for an ad. He's really at the forefront. Their family deserves a lot of credit for you know, here they are, they, they produce a product and they want to be sure that it's the absolute safest that people can consume. Also, I'll add Now Supplements, N-O-W. Their president has been in touch with me and thanking me for writing Silence Deafening because it made him realize that they needed to go back and make sure that they were looking at the safest methods for their production of nutritional supplements, and they already have a very good reputation for being very, very you know, safety-minded. They test very scrupulously. So it's definitely reaching out to a number of different places. It seems that the most obvious places to reach out to if we want to get out of our echo chamber would be to mothers' groups, any kind of pregnancy sites, dealing with kids, the foodie community. I think the, the foodie community deserves to know about this and be aware of it. Organic farmers, of course, celebrities would always be good to get. Sean, is there a methodology that is usually used by groups to build support for the petitions that they launch? Absolutely. You get your major players together, so all the members of the fan coalition, and you start making a list of people who aren't in our normal discourse. And so there might be other groups, like a trade group for the organic farmers, and you might have someone like myself or Kim or my boss over at Citizens, and you give them a phone call. And you start, you know, a, a slow conversation with as many of those groups as you can. And hopefully, if they get on board, they'll disseminate it to their list. 
And if they really get on board, they'll start adding other groups that we might not have known about. So it's a, it's a steady process and one that just keeps going. So if we were to reach out, those of us who are already in the community, and go to FAN on Facebook and download the ads, which of course all ask for signatures on the petition and comments on the petition, where would you want us to go from there? Where would you see us reaching out to within our own lives and our own communities that is outside of the comfort zone that we already have within the anti-nuclear movement? You could start with family and friends. That's sometimes a good place to start, but you know every person has to be their own judge on that. The workplace as well. The people you know every know and see every day. If you're just a regular citizen, you saw this petition, saw the people behind it, saw the ads, maybe read some of the petition, maybe read a source or two that we cited, and you think to yourself, this is great. This is something I want to get behind. Mention it to another person. Mention it to someone who probably didn't get one of our emails or isn't Facebook friends with us. And that slow word-of-mouth advertising can really become a powerful force. So if you're an everyday consumer, everyday citizen, and you, you, and you touch on this subject, just mention it to at least one other person. And if you can, five other people. And it, it grows pretty naturally. So we're talking really about ultimate grassroots activism here, growing it from the ground up every path we can take. So there, there's that, and there's also major groups talking to each other, and that's more top-down as opposed to grassroots. I'll take it from any direction I can get it. Exactly. And if I may add, I think a lot of times people just need to remember that they have a voice living in our, in our country, in the U.S., pick up the phone and call your representative and let them know it's an issue that concerns you. And, you know, I don't know where we seem to have lost track of the fact that, you know, people do make a difference. I think a lot of people feel disempowered, and we have a lot of power. You know, we all remember our civics class in school, and they taught us, our civics teachers taught us that if, you know, our, we didn't speak out, then it was kind of tough luck. We were left with the situation that we have. And unfortunately, there are so many kids coming up through the ranks today, or who have already, who didn't have civics class because that was eliminated. Right, so it's up to parents now to remember to tell children and you know and their teachers about things that concern them, that let children know that they're empowered and maybe foster the process of letting your child see you pick up the phone and calling your representative. Everything that we have to do, you know, I'll say that I, my son's kindergarten class, uh, way in the big multi-purpose room, they have uh, this program that they have a, a banner for called the Six Pillars of Character, and one of them includes citizenship, and that really got me to thinking. I wrote a blog about this. What does this mean to be, you know, this isn't being a citizenship in terms of Mexico or another country uh, in borders. This is in terms of being actively engaged in your world and in your community. And so they teach, this, a lot of school systems now around the U.S. teach the principles of the six pillars of good character. And I just thought that was so interesting, seeing that one with citizenship. So maybe, you know, there is still a reach out there to, to let kids become involved with their community. I am involved a lot with young children and other parents, and it always chagrins me just a little bit to see how, you know, children are also being told, you know, you really have a lot of work to do, you know, the earth is in trouble, where then their parents go home and turn on the TV. That's frustrating to see. We need to help our children as much as we can. We have to be involved. Every, you know, it does take a village truly. So this is one way, protecting our food. I can think of no better way to show my son and his friends that this is a, a cause worth taking up. And it's going to be a long one, a long a long process here. Sean, the, the FDA petitioning process takes a while, right? Yes. It might be shorter in that they might agree with us completely, which they could do at any time. It doesn't take a certain number of signatures before they take it seriously. Just by the filing of it, the subject is up for their review? Because we filed and followed all of the formatting and those issues, they have said we're going to look at it. The number of signatures helps. The number of congressional people involved helps. And they have a certain amount of time, which they've already passed, to give us an answer. And when that time came, they said, uh, you know, restart the clock, we need more time. So they can file an interim response saying, give us more time. And that's what they did. And so 
They'll take as much time as they need, and if they take too much, then there are some other avenues open. This is all terrifically good news. Kim, if there are certain foods that we should be avoiding or be suspicious about, do you have a short list of those that you can share with us at this time? Yes, I do. There's a two-part response to this. One is the foods that you will be leery of and avoid if possible, and the other are the good foods that you need to keep your body in the best shape possible. So personally, I can speak from my experience, I'm avoiding food from the Pacific Ocean right now. And since the ocean is really one big basin, all all oceans are connected, we do know that there have been issues in the Atlantic Ocean as well, off the coast of Ireland and England, with nuclear fallouts. And there are warnings about eating tuna anyway before this happened and tilefish and swordfish. So avoiding seafood, especially for young children, I think is really important. Any difference between above the equator and below the equator? I can't say for certain. I think above the equator would be more suspect in the northern hemisphere. But until we have the testing, we don't know for sure. Northern Japan, not far from the Fukushima prefecture, is the largest producer of green tea globally. And I see people every day drinking it, gulping it down, thinking they're doing something so great for their bodies. I would recommend they call the company of the tea that they're getting and ask them the important questions, like where is this coming from? I know that black tea can be sourced from all over the country. I personally pick up the phone and I call and I say, where where is my tea coming from? I don't really like green tea personally, so that's not an issue for me. But it really concerns me when I see so many people drinking it and ironically thinking they're doing themselves a great favor. And in, until we have the testing, we don't know what, what it is that they're drinking. And another thing is just keep in mind that animal protein tends to accumulate the radionuclides. So eating lower on the food chain, if you used to consume a lot of red meat, for instance, it's a good time to change your game plan when it goes to the store and finding foods that are maybe on the leaner side, if you do have protein, and maybe making it not so much a major part of your diet. There are plenty of other foods out there. We reach outside of our comfort zones, including you know, whole grains and fresh vegetables and fresh fruits. So another thing is dairy products and, and eating lots of cheese, especially for young kids. I think kids' parents think that in order to get calcium, they have to have all kinds of dairy, several servings every day. But you can get calcium from broccoli and from dark leafy greens, too. So eating a mineral-rich diet is still possible, but lower on the food chain. And then on the other side of it, making sure that you take a nice, good, high-quality multivitamin and mineral supplement, the emphasis being on mineral. If you're ingesting proper mineral supplementation in, in your diet, be it from the foods or, or the supplements, I should say, then your body is actually less likely to attract the radioactive minerals like the cesium-134 and 137 and, and strontium-90. Just yeah, I know strontium is an analog to calcium. Uh, cesium is an analog to potassium and magnesium. So, Having iodine in the diet is good for fresh releases when there's uh, radioactive iodine, but that goes away relatively quickly after 80 days, 8-day half-life times 10. So, But so, the mineral okay. supplementation, I think, is an excellent point. But you have to be careful, too, when you read that label. I've actually seen children's vitamins that source potassium iodine, iodide from kelp, which is the last place we want to really source it right now. Because it's already been found to be radioactive. Right. And then I've also seen children's supplements sourcing omega-3s from tuna. So you really have to look at that label carefully. There are things that you can buy that are better than others. You just have to be mindful about it. So, you know, in eating low sugar and just really trying to keep your body and immune system in good working order is is really paramount here so that we're less likely to become sick and to attract these radionuclides. And I know that you're working on a second book that's going to address this in much greater detail. Yes, and I'm hoping to have that out by the end of the year. There's a lot going on right now. At the very least, I hope to be blogging on it very soon. I have a a website, silencedeafening.com, where people can read the first two chapters of the book and also learn more information. We have media tabs at both the silencedeafening.com website and www.ffan.us, where people can learn uh, just by listening to some really great interviews that we have there with Cindy Folkers, Mary Beth Brangen, and others. 
if people wish to support the work of FAN beyond signing and forwarding the links to the petition and the ads, what can they do and where do they need to go? Well, we are setting that up right now as we speak. I hope we'll be able to update this interview later down the road. This is a time when we're not really accepting donations for FAN because we're becoming a fiscally sponsored project, and that all of that detail will be finalized within the next few weeks. So, so that would make you the equivalent of a nonprofit for people to donate to. That's right. And so the end of July forward, going into 2013, the end of the year, go to www.ffan.us and we will have a donate button. But now, supporting the work of the Silence Deafening Project, which is for the book and supporting materials, is at the first website. There is a donate button. First website being? SilenceDeafening.com. There's a donate button, and that goes to my fiscal sponsor for the book project, which is Fractured Atlas. So all donations are tax deductible. And I would encourage people to please give what you can because it does help to keep the work going, and it will help me to complete the follow-up book to Silence Deafening. And your work has been important, and Silence Deafening is a beautiful book for those who haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, I encourage it highly. Buy it from Amazon. Download it from the website. You will enjoy it. Meanwhile, Sean, how can people learn more about Citizens for Health and to see if the process that you offer is right for them and their group? If they log on to our website, www.citizens.org, that's C-I-T-I-Z-E-N-S dot org, that's our homepage. It's got all of our projects, our latest posts. If you sign up for our Email list, we send two a week, that's it, sometimes three if there's a big alert out there, and we keep people updated with all of our projects. They can always call into the office, and all of that contact information or email us is all on the website, and uh, we're always happy to talk to new people with important issues. Sean Weitzling and Kim Roberson, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for working in concert with each other in such a terrific way and showing us this additional way to get our concerns out and in the hands of those who have the most power to do the most good on behalf of all of our futures. That was Kimberly Roberson, a certified nutritionist, author, and founder of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, along with Sean Witzling of Citizens for Health. Here's today's final thought. This week marks the 4th of July, the anniversary of the founding of the United States of America. We are being deluged with images of barbecues and fireworks and red, white, and blue images of how great and mighty we are as a country. Make no mistake, I love the America I was raised to believe in, the one of freedom and equality, where anyone can rise and become a success based purely upon talent, perseverance, hard work, and a good heart. I believed my civics teachers when they said that we each have a voice in our government and the responsibility to use it often and loudly. We presumed that our elected officials would listen, take us seriously, and then use our input to help them develop policy and actions. We, the people, were in charge of this great democracy, and we alone fueled its drive to become bigger, better, faster, stronger, and more powerful than any other nation in the history of the world. Well, these days there's a lot of room to debate the currency of those early beliefs. Personally, I'd like it better to celebrate a peaceful America, not one defined by the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air. I'd prefer an America that used as our national anthem, as was once proposed, this land is your land. I'd like it if we worked diligently to protect and preserve this country's beauty, purity of the landscape, and the natural wonders. I would like to live in an America without nuclear reactors, bombs, uranium tailings, all the lethal debris that is rising, hydra-headed, to eat us alive from the inside out. It's a good thing that my early civics teachers really did get through to me, because I do still believe that I have the right to raise my voice in freedom and safety, to speak my concerns, nuclear and otherwise, without fear of retribution, that I can make a difference, not by myself, of course, 
but as part of an ever-growing community of conscious, concerned individuals, each of us doing what we can to pull our nation back from the lemming-like brink of destruction that awaits us if we don't back off from so many of our policies, nuclear among them. So this July 4th, I plan to celebrate my Independence Day not with a hot dog or a veggie burger or a traffic jam to the beach. My plan is to find a nice air-conditioned coffee shop with high-speed Wi-Fi and to plunk myself down someplace comfortable to spend the day working towards finishing my nuclear memoir, Yes, I Glow in the Dark. Getting that finished and out into the world will provide me with a very special Independence Day, one where I get to share independent thought, independent speech, and spread it by independent publication. When that takes place, man, wait till you see them fireworks. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 2nd, 2013. Material for this week's podcast has been compiled from enenews.com, ipsnews.com, The New York Times, Toledo Blade, ecowatch.com, Motley Fool, Tribune News, King 5 News in Seattle, TheHindu.com, Japan Times, NHK, Asahi Shimbun, XSKFBlogspot.ca, Gigi, Those Numbnuts at the World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community with a special shout-out to Bob Alvarez. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. And I just figured out that if you click on the categories on the homepage, it will take you to all the episodes that have information in that particular category. So it is a searchable database. Woohoo! Told you I'd get there. Had it all along and didn't even know it. So what did you learn from today's podcast class? Did you get angry? Were you surprised? Did you laugh? Where else can you find all this information in one easy-to-swallow, hour-long presentation? Not really any place else. So if you appreciate the work, help me keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat, as always, needs your support to keep bringing you news, interviews, holistic healing tips, numbnuts of the week, the NRC doc report, and so much more. If you feel so inclined, before you forget, go to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com Scroll down and hit the donate button. Then follow the prompts, fill in the blanks, keep clicking away, and help do your part to build up the bake sale budget with which this podcast is produced. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You have my personal permission to reuse this material as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. We're going to go out on a beautiful mixed metaphor. The Star-Spangled Banner sung in Navajo by Radmila Cody. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, Reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Yeah.
Sunday, I